I, a, a teacher asked me, um, how, you know, how can we, uh, a parent rather asked me, said, how can our teachers, you know, what can we tell them? Uh, how can we improve this teaching critical thinking in our schools? And I said, well, the first thing to do to help your students embrace critical thinking is stop telling them they're awesome every day. That's right. uh, but I think that this therapeutic movement of saying, you know, students have to feel comfortable. Mm. No, college is a place to be uncomfortable. College is a place where you're supposed to outgrow your childhood and take on new things that make you uncomfortable that you have to then wrestle with. Uh, I think that's that's how you create critical thinking. But we're, we're very uh, reluctant to do that. What is going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm bringing you a book. I'm condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author onto the show to have a conversation about those golden nuggets, and I'm here every single week just saving you a little bit of time. As I do every week, I got to encourage you to get your reviews in. Get your reviews in, your ratings of the podcast. Go on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever platform you're listening on. Rate and review the show. Take a screen capture that. Send it to me by email, ryan.calajuri at me.com. And I'm going to enter you into a draw every single quarter for a prize. This quarter's prize, a MacBook Air. I'll give it away a little bit before Christmas time. Nice little Christmas gift for you. So what do we got going on this week? This week, we have The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. The reason I picked up this book was because I actually caught the author, sorry, the Tom, the author, by the way, Tom Nichols. I caught Tom on Twitter, and very animated guy, likes to get into some arguments on Twitter, and I was captivated by his proposal, his, his book, and what his book stands for. And I agree with it. Today, there's a big issue where expertise is not valued as much as it used to. Because access to information is so much greater. So anybody, anywhere, can become an expert about anything. Right? You read a few articles here or there. I have an opinion now. I'm as smart as anybody else is who's spent years and years and years studying this, perfecting it, doing it. You see a lot of people get into Facebook debates, Twitter debates, um, whatever platform they're on. But they're just getting into long arguments and they think they're right and no I think I'm right and here's an article to prove my point here's an article to prove my point and I found this dynamic to be very interesting and we're seeing it a lot more today so I wanted to bring Tom on to talk about this whole idea of the death of expertise and why experts aren't taken seriously these days and why people think that they're experts when they're clearly not experts. In any case, it's an interesting book. It was a great interview with Tom. We really dig into it by looking at five golden nuggets that were taken from the book. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Share your opinion with me on LinkedIn, on Facebook. You can also follow me at Instagram as well if you want. But uh, where the debates will happen, LinkedIn, Facebook. But I'd love to hear your thoughts after the interview. In any case, let's crack right into this one. Without further ado, Tom Nichols' book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Oh, one sec. One more thing real quick. For some reason, when I was recording this interview with him, the very beginning of it started jumping and got really strange. I just don't want to edit that. I'm just going to leave it. But if you're wondering why it sounds weird for the first 30 seconds, not too sure. Technical difficulties, I guess. But in any case, the interview after that goes out without a hitch. So enjoy the interview and I'll catch you back here at the end of it. Tom, how you doing, my friend? Good, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Ah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, again, you know, for us, for all, 
Um, you know, I've had a number of requests to get you on the show to talk about your book. And um, it's very interesting. So I didn't know what to expect when I read your book. And after I read it, um, it made me rethink how I challenge people on a regular basis and um, almost made me think about, hey, you know what? I have to respect experts and what they bring to the table uh, a little bit more often. So I really hope that at the end of this podcast, people will maybe begin to think a little bit differently before they start to debate and um, perhaps have a few paradigm shifts occur here. Before we get into it, you got to give us an introduction into who you are, what you do, and uh, why you wrote the book in the first place. Well, great. My pleasure. Uh, well, uh, I'll start by saying that my day job is at the United States Naval War College, where I'm a uh, professor of national security affairs, which means I teach uh, mid-level and senior military officers about international relations and national security related stuff. This is also a good time to point out that I don't represent the, the Naval War College or the U.S. government anyway. Um, uh, my background is that I was trained back in the Cold War as a Soviet expert, and since then I branched out into other things um, broadly related to security, and uh, I've written on a host of things. I've also written on politics uh, because I was a staff assistant in the United States Senate uh, back in my misspent youth when I worked in politics, <laughs> uh, and uh, for the late Senator John Hines of Pennsylvania. And um, done a few other things. I've worked at a few think tanks. And um, I'm also, this is the only part of my resume anybody ever finds interesting. I'm also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion. I heard that. That's, so, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, it's like all the other stuff doesn't mean anything. But you get in America, at least, you get real cred if you've been on Jeopardy. So I, I'm, an, <laughs> I'm actually in the Jeopardy Hall of Fame. <laughs> the, one of the more humbling moments of my life is that well, I was teaching uh, at Dartmouth College, you know, at the time when I was on, I was in an Ivy League school. I just had a, my first book out. I thought I was, you know, just the smartest kid in the world. And one of my uh, students walks up to me and says, I saw you on Jeopardy. And I said, yes. What'd you think? He said, well, professor, I had no idea you were so smart. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. Well, there's a... Yeah. There's that one hurts a little bit. Uh, yeah, that one that one took me down a few pegs, and I never quite recovered. So, <laughs> so let's break right into this. So again, in the nature of Cut the Crap podcast, we're trying to take away the biggest golden nuggets from the book, and I want you to talk a little bit more about them to help provide a little bit more context around some of these takeaways. So the very first takeaway that I have from the book is that people just they believe that their 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 uninformed opinions are as relevant as an expert's informed view, their, their opinion, and that people with the least amount of knowledge are actually the most confident in their opinions. Why is that? Well, that's, a, that's the question I tried to tackle in the book, because uh, I think at first glance, people thought that the book is just the kind of outraged ego of yet another intellectual or, you know, academic who doesn't feel that society listens to him enough. And, um, you know, I suppose I'm guilty of that, like all uh, uh, people in the academy or who do that kind of work. But that's not really what it was about. I mean, I, as I say at the outset, you know, pe people don't like eggheads. That's normal. And, and here in the United States, that's actually a healthy thing that we don't just automatically defer uh, to people because they have a particular title or a rank or, or uh, some kind of uh, certificate. What started to, to, to worry me was not that people were telling experts, look, I doubt you, or I want a second opinion, or I want you to explain yourself. They were starting to say to experts, I know better than you. Hmm. Uh, I wrote the book as a, the, ori the original version of this was some years ago as a blog post where uh, I was writing about how a young person 
somebody with really no experience in Russian affairs said to me after a long discussion, said, Tom, I don't think you understand Russia. Let me explain it to you. Yeah. And I said, wow, when did that start happening? That's the new phenomenon that I I really got curious about. And so I I think that at the root of it all, and I I go through several causes, uh, the nature of higher education, the segmenting of the media into echo chambers, the um, ubiquitous, but also very baleful influence of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that at the root of all this is a long-term trend in the growth of narcissism. Mm. That this is the reflection of a narcissistic society that says, I'm, I'm always smart. I know no one knows better than me. You're not the boss of me. I don't have to listen to you. It, it really is a kind of growth of maybe 40 or 50 years of permanent youth culture in which people, at least intellectually, remain perpetually adolescent and say, no one knows better than me. No one understands what I know. I'm as smart as everybody else. Hmm. And I think that's what's at the root of it. And it's interesting. And I have to ask, you know, what does it take to become an expert? Because I know a lot about marketing and there's a lot of people go online, they watch a lot of videos, they read marketing books and they might consider themselves to be fairly knowledgeable, maybe even call themselves an expert. And yet they haven't executed a single marketing campaign in their life. You, my friend, are not an expert. So what makes an expert an expert today? Uh, you know, as you, po- as you just said, people say, well, I read books. Well, um, you know, you can read books about flying. It doesn't make you a pilot. Um, you, you know, you can read books about sex. It doesn't mean you, you know what you're doing. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, th- things in theory are not the same thing as things in practice. And the objection I usually get is, well, you just think people with advanced degrees are experts. And that's not true either. Um, there are a lot of really stupid people walking around with advanced degrees. <laughs> so, I, so I try to put together a definition that I think accords with our common sense about what an expert is. And the first part of that is, who would you ask for advice on a, on a complicated matter? You know, the people who, in, in your own field, in marketing, um, if someone said, look, I really need advice about marketing because I have this product and it's very important, you wouldn't turn to the guy and say, well, I don't want the guy who has a lot of experience doing this. You've read some books. You're just as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody really believes that. Nobody really buys that. So uh, I, I think um, it's a combination of education which is, or training because, remember, not every, not every expert field needs education. Sometimes um, this is a matter of uh, training, for example, an electrician as an expert. I mean, I'm terrified of touching the power box in my own house. <laughs> I have a PhD. I've written books about nuclear weapons. But if you ask me to go set the circuit breaker, I, I get sweaty <laughs> um, because I'm certain I'm going to do something wrong. So an electrician, a plumber, a pilot, a lawyer, a diplomat, these people have education or training they have been certified by other experts. That's another important part of this is peer review. Um, I had someone once tell me that um, reading a book a month makes you an expert. Hmm. And I said, well, it depends on what book, you know, do you, whether it's any good, whether someone else has examined you, spoken to you, determined that you actually understood what you read. There has to be some other human being involved here. Nobody is an expert in a vacuum. Uh, and then finally, there are track records and longevity. Now, there are people who are bad dentists, you know, from day one and are never any better at it. But usually longevity and some kind of success in that field 
uh, you know, lawyers who aren't very good eventually lose clients. Um, you know, marketers who aren't very good eventually aren't called on to market mm-hmm. anything in the future if they fail enough times. So it's a combination of all those things. And I think that's, you know, people, people know that when they see it. But again, there is this narcissistic rejection of, well, I, you know, I don't want to accept that. So I'm going to reject your advanced degree or your years of experience or your portfolio or whatever it is, because that that isn't something I have. So therefore, I don't want to accept it. But I think most people are very sensible about this. It's interesting, the whole narcissistic trait. Um, you know, I think that if we all look deep inside, you know, we all, for the most part, we all, we all want to be right. We all want to appear smart. But to what extent? And we'll get into that a little bit later on with some of the later golden nuggets. But before we do that, um, let's go to golden nugget number two, which says that one cause of anti-intellectualism is educational institutions' failure to teach critical thinking skills. Talk to us a little bit about that, critical thinking skills. Well, critical thinking requires... Uh, a lot of uh, interaction with another human being and often being told that you're wrong. And my concern about education, I didn't write about K through 12 because I'm not a K through 12 teacher and I didn't want to get too far out of my lane. But I've spoken about this with with K through 12 teachers and I certainly know about it at the college level where uh, the, the critical, the, the, the way you teach critical thinking is to constantly challenge the students and to be willing to hurt their feelings. That's been replaced in modern education by a very therapeutic model of education that says you have to be affirming and that the student's self-esteem is very important and that the students can't be upset and they can't feel bad about themselves. A story I always tell about this when I'm on the road is that one of my greatest um, um, teachers was a Jesuit priest uh, at Georgetown University, which is, of course, a Jesuit school, and he he, uh, taught me my introductory comparative uh, excuse me, um, political philosophy class. And mostly, most of that term was spent telling me that I was wrong um, and that I didn't quite understand Plato or Socrates. And uh, at the end, I managed to get an A. And I thought I was the king of the world. And I walked up to him, uh, to this imposing uh, Jesuit, you know, the original man in black uh, from head to toe. And I walked up to him at Christmas and I said, what do you say, Father? Merry Christmas. Uh, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And he fixed me with a stare over his glasses. And he said, what I say to you, Mr. Nichols is repent. (laughs) And, and, you know, it was such a wonderful moment to, I mean, he became a mentor and one of my most valued teachers and a friend over the years, but it was a wonderful moment again, to remind me that I have to keep sharpening these abilities that there are not, there's not some moment you reach where you say, now you are a critical thinker, that it is a process that it requires a certain amount of humility uh, and self-knowledge. And we just don't take, I mean, we just don't do that with most students these days. Oh my God, uh, man, we, no. we affirm them rather than challenge them. That's right. And it's something that I've mentioned on the podcast multiple times, but it wasn't until I started working with people who were smarter than me. And here, here's the story that I always tell, and I'll be brief because I know that people listening have heard this before, but when I first started off and you know, I opened up my own um, marketing consultancy and I started working with clients, you could not tell me anything that I did not know. I would make shit up on the spot and say, oh, you know, I got this figured out. I have the answer for that. I have the answer for that. And you could not tell me otherwise. 
until I started to work with mentors, people who are smarter than me, who have been there, done that, and I became wrong every single time. And I continue to work with uh, a CEO right now who um, he believes in, you know, you mentioned Socrates, he believes in the Socratic method and asks me so many questions. And I challenge, he challenges my assumptions every day and makes me a better professional. And it comes down to this critical thinking. And I don't think, I agree with you. I don't think that we have enough of that in our world today, which challenges every assumption that you have. And to me, it makes me a better professional. And I truly believe that we don't have enough of that in society today. I, a, a teacher asked me, um, how, you know, how can we, uh, a parent rather asked me, said, how can our teachers, you know, what can we tell them? Uh, how can we improve this teaching critical thinking in our schools? And I said, well, the first thing to do to help your students embrace critical thinking is stop telling them they're awesome every day. That's right. Uh, you know, there's, it's okay to tell a student, you know, that you've gotten this wrong or you don't understand it. it and, you know, there are good teachers. I mean, I, I will say, first of all, I think American universities are still the best in the world. Uh, I should probably say North American universities. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, the Western model of education is still the greatest, including the Socratic method. Uh, but I think that this therapeutic movement of saying, you know, students have to feel comfortable. Mm. No, college is a place to be uncomfortable. College is a place where you're supposed to outgrow your childhood and take on new things that make you uncomfortable that you have to then wrestle with. Uh, I think that's that's how you create critical thinking. But we're, we're very uh, reluctant to do that. I, I'm like you. I like being in a room with people a lot smarter than I am. I uh, did a fellowship some years ago at the Kennedy School at Harvard. I found myself sitting in a meeting one day, uh, and I realized the guy down the table was a no kidding Nobel Prize winner. Um, you know, I, I I just thought, okay, I want to just open my head and soak this up. Uh, but you'd be surprised how many people will walk up to people like that and say, "Let me explain nuclear physics to you." Oh, of course, of course. And you know, it's funny. There's so many people these days who are leaving jobs because their CEO or their manager challenges them or makes them feel stupid. Well, is it because you're wrong or is it because you just don't like being challenged? Do you think that you're always right? If you're listening out there and you are that kind of person, maybe you have to take a step back and realize, hold on a second. Do I know everything? Am I lying to myself? Or, or right. conversely, you know, there's also another possibility. Maybe you're just not good at this. This is another problem that, you know, I think people have a hard time internalizing. People say, well, I, I didn't like that job. Well, it's also possible that you're, you know, I think we, we have this created this myth to say to younger people, whatever you want to do, you can do. And the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're five foot six, you're probably not going to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> uh, you know, there are just things. There are people who have, I, I always tell my, I teach a writing class and I always tell my writing students, remember what Ernest Hemingway said about writing, that there are two important prerequisites. He said, one is a real seriousness about writing. And then he said, and the other, unfortunately, is talent. Hmm. Uh, which is also a defining characteristic uh, characteristic of an expert. I think people who have a talent, who pursue that talent, make better experts than people who, you know, there are people who just aren't going to be good doctors or airline pilots, no matter how much you put them through, and maybe they should do something else. I agree with that. And on a similar vein, with golden nugget number three, we, we're going to stick on this uh, anti-intellectualism uh, trend here, but 
Another cause of it is the internet, you know, access to information and the mix of true and false information. It's so easy for anybody to go online today. And I, I get challenged all the time on marketing because they'll go and they'll watch a video from uh, Gary Vaynerchuk or Seth Godin. And all of a sudden they watch enough of their videos and they become experts and they stand toe to toe with me and they want to challenge me on certain concepts, certain strategies, how you execute something. And like I said at the top, they have never executed a marketing campaign in their life. So how has the internet and access to information um, fueled this you know, uh, anti-intellectualism? Well, it's given people the ammunition they need to try to one-up each other constantly. Mm. In the book, uh, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners will remember this old television show, but there was a classic American television show named Cheers mm. about a bar. And one of the beloved characters in it was the bar know-it-all. He was a mailman who always sat at the end of the bar. And he was always hauling off, he was set in Boston. And he was always hauling off things like, well, you know, it's a known fact or uh, studies have shown. You know, <laughs> and of course, it was, it was endearing because there's only one guy. The problem with the Internet, with everybody having a smartphone in their pocket, everybody in the bar is that guy now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're all, we said, you know, that if we're having an argument or if we're discussing somebody, something, somebody pulls a phone out of their pocket or flips open their their um, their their laptop or their uh, tablet, and they start saying, "Well, it says here." And of course, because the internet is not edited, the ed- the internet is not vetted in any way. I always tell people the internet does not tell you the truth; it just answers whatever stupid question you asked it. <laughs> That's true, right? It doesn't say. Um, you don't get you don't get the little warning that pops up that says warning. You know, you're asking a really dumb question or this doesn't have a, an answer. If you want to believe that, uh, you know, that that uh, lizards can fly um, in you know San Francisco on a Tuesday, somebody somewhere has said it's true. Mm-hmm. And this makes people it ex- I think the, the Internet helps to make con- I, there's a chapter in the book called why conversation is exhausting. And it makes it exhausting because people are constantly slinging factoids at each other that they themselves don't understand. And the Internet is a huge enabler of that. Oh, man. Internet and social media, essentially. When you look at times of election or, um, or when certain debates are happening online, it gets sickening. Like when it comes down to an election uh, you know, in Canada or United States, I have to stay off Facebook because just people get into these long diatribes of – you know, this is why this person's wrong for, for the nation. This is why this person's right for the nation. And I'm right, you're wrong. Look at this article. Look at this article. And it just gets exhausting. And everyone just has this need to win and one-up one another. And um, I think it really fuels this 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 idea that I'm always right and you're always wrong. I always have the right information. I know better when it's not true. Well, the, the internet is particularly noxious for that because, you know – I mean, we had political arguments with each other before the Internet. Right. And, you know, friendships were ruined by it and (laughs) fights would break out. I mean, the Internet is not the – I'm actually a huge fan of the Internet. I mean, it came of age when I did. Um, You know, I still remember Netscape and I had a 20.88 modem and all that stuff. Um, With that said, the the problem with the Internet is not just that it feeds you a lot of really bad information. It, it removes human contact. You know, if the two of us are sitting arguing about politics, if you and I have sat down together at lunch or in a bar, we're social animals. We want to be liked by each other. We want to communicate. We enjoy each other's presence because human beings are wired 
to want to be in each other's presence. If you remove all that human contact and you turn other human beings into words on a screen, and I, I'm gonna raise my hand right now and say, I'm guilty of this. I mean, I have over 100,000 followers on Twitter and I've been mean to a lot of them more than I <laughs> should have been. But as, you know, as, as I often point out, you know, I'm mean to people on Twitter because they ask me stupid questions or say insulting things to me that they would never think to do in person. Mm -hmm. Very true. And so that removing that human contact I think makes us all a little harder edged and we don't go to social media to learn from each other. We go to social media to win, to make ourselves feel better, to feed that narcissistic problem mm. of saying, you know, I've had a bad day and I, I'm not going to kick the dog. I'm going to go on Twitter or I'm going to go on Facebook and I'm going to rant about, uh, you know, libtards or right wing fascists or Trump morons or Hillary cultists or whatever my, you know, ax to grind is. And that that's our it's almost like this kind of unhealthy form of therapy for us. Hmm. Interesting. Why do you think there's so much distrust for experts today? You know, uh, for example, you, you go online and people believe that they have um, they know more. They know more than doctors. They know more than the politicians. I know what's best for our country. If only I ran the country or, you know, sports teams. I know how to I, I, I know how to coach. I could coach this team better. I can't believe they called that play. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> why is that? Why is there so much distrust for experts today? And it just does it just come back to that point of, you know, for the most part, people are narcissistic and believe they know better and the access to information, you know, um, uh, justifies their opinion or they find you know articles online that that justify why do people distrust experts so much today well i think there's a, a couple of reasons one is yes it's the underlying narcissism i mean to distrust an expert is very empowering right it's i mean i i i've often said in the united states it's like a national temper tantrum that boils down to you're not the boss of me hmm. um you know nobody likes to see their kid get stuck with a needle Right. I mean, I, I have a I you know, my daughter is a teenager and, you know, when she was a baby and I would take her for vaccinations, I hated it. I mean, I, I, I you know, you don't want to see your child in pain. Um, but then people say, well, you know what, I'll avoid that. Um, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid because I saw something on the Internet and it makes me feel good to say I'm in charge now. Some doctor isn't standing there, you know, sticking painful things in my kid. And making me feel scared, like, is this going to hurt my child? What are the, you know, it, it's, it's a way of seizing power for yourself against people um, who you think just don't care about you. Mm -hmm. I also think it's partly the problem of a complicated world. The world moves so quickly and moves so fast that it, people find it overwhelming. And so rejecting expertise is a way of saying, look, I don't care how complicated things look. I understand the reality. It's much more simple. I don't need some egghead. You know, why is the economy having difficulties? Because, you know, bad people are making mistakes. Mm. And I don't need some pointing head with a PhD to explain it to me. Now, with that said, look, experts have made mistakes and they've made terrible mistakes. But I think what's different and part, again, part of the reason I wrote The Death of Expertise is that today people look for the expert mistakes as a way of finding, as a way of getting out of having to listen to experts. For example, uh, eggs. Remember how eggs were bad for us? You know, I love eggs. That, that kind of pissed me off. Uh, so when my doctor said, no, go ahead, get all the eggs you want, I was like, oh, so you admit it, you're a quack. Uh, but, you know, 
the rest of your doctor's advice. Don't eat too many eggs. Don't have a cheeseburger for breakfast. Beer is not a mid-morning snack. Uh, you know, people want to say, look, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. And because doctors were wrong about eggs, I am now empowered to dismiss their advice about everything. Um, I also think, and this is where I'll lay on experts. There is one last reason, and I think experts do have to own this one. We lack empathy. We, we deal in our own fields and we get very insular. We deal in the world of data. Uh, we deal in the world of theory. We're very used to what we talk about. You know, you're a marketing expert. You talk to other marketing guys. When someone out there is suffering economically, they're not really interested in a lecture from you about why a product failed. And, and if, you, if you start to try to explain something, that comes across, understandably sometimes, as a lack of empathy. Um, right. and, and I get this all the time when people talk to me about how scared they are about foreign policy. You know, I, I'm always, my <laughs> Wisconsin Public Radio once referred, me, referred to me as the Internet's glass of warm milk. Because <laughs> uh, I'm always telling people to calm down and saying, you know, you are really... You don't understand how scared we are because you live in the world of nuclear weapons and national defense. And I, I have to step back now and then and say, you know, it, I, I have to remember that there was a time this wasn't obvious to me. And I think that's where experts sometimes go wrong, that they don't have a lot of patience with people who challenge them in their field because to them it's such a self-evidently dumb thing that they sometimes forget that the people who are challenging them are unhappy or afraid, or worried about their kids, or whatever it is. And I think we, the expert community, have to do better at reaching out. But on the other hand, people have to be willing to listen to us. Mm, that's exactly right. And I think it's a great takeaway for the experts out there as well. And I've gotten myself into trouble doing that before as well, where you know, people who are challenging me and people who are asking questions, they haven't walked in my shoes. Right? So I can't go ahead and just more or less cut to the cut to the chase and say how do you not understand this it's so simple no of right. course you don't understand this because you haven't had the you know 15 years of experience in marketing that I do you maybe have one or two years of experience so i have to be more patient i have to be more empathetic and i have to you know of course maybe lead you through that discussion a little bit more slowly um, but they also, of course, have to be willing to listen and be willing to learn as well one place i think where this gets particularly conflictual is when people ask experts uh, about things and then they don't want to hear uh, that what they want to be is absolved of their role in it, uh, in whatever the problem is. They want experts to kind of give them the right answer rather than the truth. And I think the biggest challenge for experts is always speaking truth to our client, which is society. Uh, I, I had lunch today just before we, we um, recorded this. I had lunch with a guy who works in the mortgage industry. And we got talking about the big housing crash of 08. Mm. And he shook his head and he said, you know, he said the, in the end, he said, yeah, you know, Wall Street were responsible and the bankers were responsible. He said, but in the end, what fueled the crash was the creation of a bunch of bad mortgages by people who should never have been approved for mortgages mm -hmm. who took out loans for houses they couldn't afford. Mm -hmm. You know, credit default swaps and all the other uh, you know, exotic instruments were all predicated on bad mortgages, which up until that period didn't exist. And you tell this to people and they become furious because it doesn't help them. It may be true and it may be right that people took out a lot of loans that 
they shouldn't have taken out. But if you've been thrown out of work by it, or if you screwed up and signed a mortgage you didn't understand and you lost your house, the last thing you need is some intellectual or economist explaining to you why it's your fault. Hmm. And I think that's, that's hard to do in an empathetic way um, because the public doesn't want to hear, you know, speaking truth to power, you know, is difficult. Speaking truth to the rest of society is just as difficult. Hmm. In Golden Nugget number four, we talk about confirmation bias. And confirmation bias, it's a significant issue that keeps a large majority of non-experts in a constant state of ignorance. And I think the confirmation bias is something that's very scary. And when you go to the extreme, that's when you start to see things like conspiracy theories and what have you. And as sickening as it sounds, you know, we're recording this just days after Las Vegas, and I'm already seeing conspiracy theories on Las Vegas and how this is a movement from the government to, um, you know, crack down on gun control and take power away from the people and give more power to the nation. And, and it just boggles my mind. And the articles that I see coming from there is just to support those thoughts. It's unreal. And to me, one of the biggest takeaways I want people to grab from this is how dangerous confirmation bias can be. So can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that and, uh, and the danger of it? Sure. I talk about conspiracy theories in the book, by the way, as mm. the most extreme form of confirmation bias. Um, <clears throat> part, of, part of what confirmation bias does, your brain is kind of wired to seek out information that makes sense. Uh, so confirmation bias is just normal. It's human. Experts suffer from it. In fact, there's even some evidence out there that experts might suffer from confirmation bias even more than ordinary people because we think we already think we know more. Hmm. Um, so it's it's a natural human thing to say, if I already believe something, it's, it's not normal for me to go out and look for stuff that proves that I'm wrong because nobody likes to be wrong. Mm -hmm. But after something like Las Vegas or 9-11, or the Kennedy assassination, or you know, World War One, or the Great Depression, people have a hard time grasping that terrible things can happen for no good reason. And so they're, to make sense of it, they say, this can't just be the result of an uncaring universe. There must be a reason. Because again, that's we're structured to think that way. We're structured to think that everything has a reason. Um, it can't just be that one lone gunman, you know, who ha ha was a you know weird guy from the day he was born, climbed into a book depository and took out a president. Mm -hmm. That's that's too fr in a way that's even more frightening than a conspiracy mm -hmm. because it's random. Uh, um, when you think to nine eleven conspiracies, you know, I, I had endless arguments even with my academic colleagues about this, where they said, you know, this was really remarkable planning and logistic. I said, look, mm -hmm. enough. You know, you and I and a class of our students with a bunch of first class tickets and box cutters could have pulled off this attack. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to accept that because then it could happen again. It's much more it's almost in a strange way comforting to say, no, this was the end result of an incredible chain of events that only I understand. And that's the other thing about this is that's very again, it goes back to empowerment. I understand the conspiracy. You don't. I have secret knowledge that makes me powerful. You are just a, a sheep. You are you are in the dark. I am the person who understands. Um, and and that's an extreme version of confirmation right. bias. But confirmation bias is just normal. I mean, um, if you have if you somehow get it into your head that 
um, you know, I mean, I was, I, for example, I see you have a lovely dog. Um, I, I was bitten by a dog as a kid and it took me a long time to get over the idea that dogs bite people. It just, I kind of learned from that as a kid. I always thought of dogs as, you know, I kind of said, okay, you know, my, my bias is every time I hear about a dog biting somebody, I would say, well, there you go. Hmm. Every time I heard about a dog rescuing a, you know, somebody in a river, I'd say, well, that, that's just an exception. Hmm. It's, uh, that's how it works. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's, it's something that's very dangerous. And you have to be very self-aware to keep it in check. But when I was... Well, that's uh, how, oh, you have ahead. to keep it in check because otherwise, you, you, you know, this is also how you develop racial stereotypes and bigotry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, it, it, works, it works both ways. It works for both negative and positive. Because I, if I see that I do something... Uh, if I think a certain way or if I take a certain action and I continually do this, then it confirms that, hey, what I'm doing is the right path. And I'm going to continue doing this and bringing the right people around me and doing the right actions that are going to continue to you know, build my life, move in the right direction. So it can work for you in the positive sense, but in the negative sense, it can be incredibly, incredibly dangerous for you. Yes. And you know, it's, uh, this is where uh, people will let their confirmation bias override their rational sense. Now, I, I happen to enjoy gambling. Mm. Uh, go to a casino, watch somebody who's not very good at blackjack. You know, they, they win a few hands. They say, well, I'm, I know I got it. I, I have a gut feeling. And you just want to sit, turn to them and say, you know, if you keep hitting a 16 against a five, uh, you know, and they say, yeah, yeah, but I, I have a feeling. I just, because I did it the last time and it worked. <laughs> well, that, you know, the, the laws of mathematics don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Um, but that, you know, confirmation bias is inherently irrational that way. But it also, again, it's a way of, it's a way of us trying to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, one of the things that gets very scary about, um, about this, this having expert status. And, uh, one of my, one of my biggest concerns here is that, um, you almost form this, uh, this division of this almost elitist sense of, 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 you know, I, I'm in, I'm, I'm in the elite now because I'm an expert. I have X amount of years doing this. And I've, I've had this kind of experience and well, you just don't, you know, so that to me is always something I worry about. So let's try to end this on a positive note with golden nugget number five, where, you know, experts and the public, they can take steps to restore their relationship. And, you know, we got to end off on this note. Um, give us some insight into that. How can we do that? How can we restore this relationship between, you know, lay people and experts? Well, one thing that I think is really important, and you alluded to it just now when you use the term elite. I think um, the average person has to get over the idea that all experts are elites. Mm. Uh, and I think part of that distrust of experts is a, a resentment because we live in a knowledge economy now. We're, we're deep into the information age. Uh, knowledge is more important than you know manufacturing in some areas. Um, you know, well, I grew up in the manufacturing age. We're now into an information age. But the assumption that everybody who has mastered the knowledge arts or who has somehow made their um, become adept at dealing with the information age are elites is a problem because elites are the people who make decisions. Experts are the people who advise people who make decisions. And we don't always get listened to either. Hmm. Now, in the United States, President Trump made a he ran on this. He ran on conflating experts right. and elites. And I think that the first step is for um, first for for ordinary folks to step back and say, listen, you know, the guy who advises a senator, which was me, is not the senator. You know, we that we have to you, you got to hold people to Democratic accountability. 
But you also have to remember, we're giving the best advice we can give under the circumstances. I think for elites, uh, an important way to repair this breach is to get back in the game, is to go out there and share your knowledge, to take your lumps, to write letters to the editor, to do public speaking, to do whatever it is, to be involved in your community. Because I think elites um, uh, have created their insular camps. And I think experts have mimicked elites by doing the same thing. Mm. that they only talk to each other because they think it's just too hard to talk to the public. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, why are you even on Twitter? Why do you bother? Hmm. And I said, well, I'm a teacher. And, you know, I, I live in this country. I live in the world. I, you know, if people ask me a question, I take a lot of pot shots at people, but I, I think most of the people who follow me would say that if you ask me a question in good faith, I will answer it. I will do my best to get to you and to give you an answer and I, because I feel like I was privileged in this society to get an education, to have the experiences I've had. So I think experts need to remember that uh, they need to share. And, you know, not everybody's going to go out there and give lectures or write op-eds. But even in your family, even in your community, you need to step forward. And I think, I think the elites have distanced themselves. And I think the experts have done the same thing. And I I. I put that squarely on the shoulder of the experts. Oh, completely agree with you. And today there's no excuse why you can't get out there and share your knowledge, um, help other people understand um, who, who might be hungry for knowledge. In the world of social media and this interconnectedness that we live in, it's never been easier. Podcasting, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever medium you choose, it's easy to connect. And honestly, some of the people that I believe are respected the most today um, are experts, whether they're... And, and it's you not know, fun. It, I mean... My message to the experts is you, you won't always enjoy this. Hmm. Um, you know, I've gotten out there and I've said, you know, I've said stuff and put my views out and I, I've been called every name in the book. But I think it's also very rewarding because you do find people who will send you a note and say things like, you know, if you when you write things, I pay attention. and I, you know, I value your view and I want to know more. And you, you're helping people to be constant learners. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of our job. It's a scary thing sometimes putting yourself out there. But in the end, I, I always encourage, always encourage experts to put themselves out there. And, um, you know, you'll end up helping more people than you piss off, I'm sure. I think so. That is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters by Tom Nichols. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And uh, for anybody who wants to reach out to you, who wants to connect with you, um, how do they do that? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Radio Free Tom. Uh, on Twitter, and if uh, you'd like to send me an email, I am at um, deathofexpertise at gmail.com. Uh, so feel free to reach out, and um, those are the those are my digits. Thank you so much, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. All right, there we have it. That's Tom Nichols' book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Solid interview. Enjoyed talking to Tom. He really brought a lot of light to some very interesting thoughts that I had in my mind, this idea that experts just aren't valued anymore for the information because of the access to information and what the internet brings to all of us. So it's an interesting interview and uh, great perspectives overall. So I appreciate Tom coming on the show and sharing his opinions with us. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed this interview, then please go online, rate and review the show, whether you're listening on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, doesn't matter, Stitcher, 
do a rating, do a review, send it to me by email, ryan.calajuri at me.com, and I'll make sure that you get entered into the draw every single quarter for the prize. And of course, this quarter's prize, MacBook Air. And like I said at the very top, I'll be giving this away closer to Christmas time and uh, be a nice little Christmas gift for you. That's a wrap, my friends. I got nothing else to say this week. So thank you again for tuning in. I always, always appreciate you tuning in. Do me a favor, connect with me on LinkedIn, connect with me on Facebook, have a debate with me. If you disagree with some of the opinions shared, if you agree with me, I'd love to hear them. To me, it's all about dialogue and it's all about learning from one another. So connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, reach out to me, just say hi. I always love to know who's out there listening and uh, I would appreciate that uh, the quick little reach out. In any case, my friends, I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And again, hey, just here every single week trying to save you a little bit of time. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. Love you guys. I don't believe in the word procrastination. Like, I don't really believe in that word. I told a young lady in Australia who told me she was a procrastinator. I said, look, if I told you to meet me here tomorrow at 5 a.m. and I'm gonna give you $3 million, where would you be? She said, I'm gonna be right there at 4.59, ready to get that $3 million. And I said, so there's no such thing as procrastination. What it is, is it's not important to you. Right? It's not, it's not meaningful to you. It's not, it's not something that's urgent to you. And when something is not urgent, you put it off. So yep, you're in school, yes. You probably are getting grades, et cetera. But if it's not meaningful to you, if it's not important to you, then you're not gonna make it a priority. So what you have to do is find out how can you make it meaningful? How can you make it purposeful? How can, how can you make it stick? And when you can find that out, I promise you, you'll get up early, you'll get there first, and you'll do whatever it takes to make that goal a reality. So for me, no such thing as procrastination is a such thing as it's not a priority to you. You said that you were going to graduate this year. You were going to finish college this year. You said you were going to run a marathon, right? This is what you said out of your mouth. All I'm doing is I'm saying, listen to me, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you should do this. You should do that. You should do this. I didn't tell you all year what you should do. But what I did tell you is don't talk about it. Be about it. You should be tired. All right? You should be tired of talking about it. And you should be at a place where you're doing something about it. All right? The reason why you have not become successful, the reason why you are not like a locomotive, the reason why you are not having success in your life is because every single day you got an excuse. And I need you to do me a favor. I made my last excuse yesterday, my last reason. I came up with my last reason yesterday of why I can't do what I'm supposed to do. And so I need you to do me a huge favor. All your excuses, all your good reasons, everything, every, everything that's keeping you from doing what you're supposed to do, I need you to put it behind you and say yesterday was the last day for that foolishness. Yesterday was the last day to say I don't have enough money to do this. I don't have enough money to go to school. I don't have enough money to get a computer. I don't have, I don't have what it takes. I'm not smart enough, right? I, I don't write well enough. I don't sing well enough. That's why I didn't do my CD. I didn't write my book because I'm not on that level. Listen to me. You better hear what I'm saying. Yesterday was the last day that I want to hear an excuse. It's over with. I was embarrassed. I said, listen to me, no more defeats. 
No more defeats, man. No more. I was tired of feeling defeated. I was tired of talking about I was going to do it and didn't do it. And I hated the feeling of when somebody asked me, yo, E, where the book? I ain't got it. I was tired of getting beat. I was tired of defeat. I said, I'm going to get it done. Every time you set this big goal, you never get it accomplished because you never break it up in manageable pieces. This is it. I'm talking about procrastinators. You still have time. Don't quit. Don't give up. You still have time. You can do it. You can make it happen, but you can't do it procrastinating. You can't do it talking about it, all right? So I just want to go back and recap because I want to make sure you hear what I'm saying. But I, I dare you, I double dare you to do exactly what you said you were going to do when the year started because it's not too late.